destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Paul later said, I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus the Nazarene. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. Authorized by the leading priest, I caused many believers there to be sent to prison, and I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. The children were left alone, and other believers heard that they were by themselves and came to care for the children. They had no family, no one that would claim them for fear of being arrested. While the Mosses were staying with the children, a messenger came and told them that Matt refused to denounce Jesus and was killed that night. Melody went into labor in prison and both her and her baby died. The mosses immediately take the children and leave in the night to escape to Antioch. They leave everything behind to begin a new life in a new place with nothing. As they pack up their things, their girls were able to take their mother's shawl, the coat of their father's, and they loaded up the game that they had played so many nights together. So imagine this scene. A couple comes in to take care of a family whose parents have died in persecution. The children may not even know them. And not only are they with people they may not know very well, but they have to leave everything behind. That's all they had to remember the life they had known before such horror descended upon them. A life before the face of one man began to haunt their dreams. PTSD wasn't something that was really discussed or had a name back then. Can you imagine knowing that there was one face that commanded the death of your parents? One face that dragged them away and destroyed all your happiness. We're going to return to this family ten years later. They've made it to Antioch. They've started a new life. Papa Moss is a member on the board. 
with the believers in Antioch. He's helped the children work through the trauma of having their parents taken from them and not understanding why. Papa Moss comes home with news that the believers in Antioch were receiving a guest. They had sent Elder Barnabas because their churches were growing and their their house meetings were growing. And they needed more teaching. Elder Barnabas had sent a letter saying, I have found a teacher. He knows God. He is considered an apostle. And we will be bringing him to the Moss House meeting tomorrow evening. Be ready. I want you to imagine with me the excitement. There was no media. There was no announcements. It was word to word. There was someone that was an apostle of Jesus, the Messiah, that is coming to their house to share the words of Jesus. He is coming to tell them how to live and what they need to do to follow the Messiah. The excitement is tangible. It's like electricity in the house. The house is packed to capacity. It's full. People are standing. They're squished together. They've brought other people. They cannot wait to meet this teacher. They begin to pray. And as the Spirit moves, people are ready their hearts to receive. When a scream pierces the air. 18-year-old Lillian stands frozen, face pale dropping her mother's shawl to the ground because the face from her nightmares is staring back at her. The man that drug her father and mother away 10 years ago and she would never see them again just walked through the door. The teacher, the anointed man of God, this apostle is the very one that caused the horror of losing her parents. Why is he here? Who let this man in? How does he have a right to be a teacher after all he's done? How can the Messiah love someone who has hurt me so much, who stole my life, who stole my family? This story and these people are not characters we read of in the Bible. But this is a very likely scenario. There would be those living all over the empire that had run from Paul's persecution. People had left everything they had in the middle of the night to escape, to save their families. Everywhere you went, there were people that knew somebody or had a family member that had been persecuted, lost everything they owned, or died because of the teacher, Paul. There would be those that had his face engraved in their mind because of a family member, because of a situation, that still had fear when they saw his face because of his vigilant mission to annihilate the message of Jesus Christ. Not only was this man that caused so much pain redeemed, but now he was called an apostle of Christ. 
He was loved by so many and hated by so many more. His word was obeyed as gospel, and many believers were even encouraged to give him financial support for his missionary journeys and other believers in need. So not only did he hurt people's families, but now they were expected to give him money to go and care for others and take the gospel. Did anybody not remember what he did? Were the believers he persecuted forgotten, dismissed as unfortunate casualties so that the great Apostle Paul could find his way to Christ? Were they cast aside as nameless people, thrown in the gutter so that one man could be famous? Brother Moss is going to come and take you just for a minute to what we imagine the conversation might be that evening after the Apostle Paul left. That house meeting. There was still a family there that had lost and had been hurt. It would have been quite traumatic and someone would need to speak to the now grown or almost grown children to help them work through where the scab had been ripped off of this wound. Pretend with me for just a moment before I get to the scripture. My children, I'm so very sorry for the pain you're bearing, but we must turn again to the words of Jesus. Remember, he was hurt more than we ever were. Then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold, along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me, and I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him and he released him and forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him 
a few thousand dollars, and he grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me, and I will pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. But when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against so that your father in heaven will forgive your sins too. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn others, or it will come back against you. Forgive others, and you will be forgiven. Even if that person wrongs you seven times a day, and each time turns back again and asks for forgiveness, you must forgive. When they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. These are the words of Jesus. Other than the Old Testament, it's all they had. In this scenario, these are the words that likely would have been shared, stories that would have been told to help with the struggle of how do I forgive somebody that God is using that caused me so much pain? How do you process through persecution and loss with somebody, especially with somebody that God is using? How do you listen to somebody get up and preach a message that's hurt you? How do you hear revival is happening at a place where you had to leave because the pain was so bad? How do you deal with loss and frustration when forgiveness is required by our Savior? It really doesn't seem like the person that hurt you had to pay a price. These people would not have had the words of Paul. He happened to have penned many, many, many of the verses in the New Testament that have to do with forgiveness. The man 
that, that needed the forgiveness of so many people penned some of the strongest scriptures that had to do with forgiveness. You see, not only did those who suffered by his direction have to learn to forgive, but Paul had to learn to forgive himself. For every person that was harmed because of him. He understood the weight of pain, memories, children that were adults that he had looked at self-righteously when he took their parents away. Families that had lost everything to escape him. And he too had those faces haunting his dreams and his memories as he's now preaching. And you can't tell me he didn't show up at a church and someone didn't get up and walk out because they couldn't get past what he had done. How would you like to walk into, walk into a building knowing there would be people there you had hurt and you needed their forgiveness and now you were going to have to stand up and try to give them a word from the Lord? Forgiveness is hard. It's hard to give. Sometimes it's hard to receive. First century believers had to look to Jesus and his words. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They had to follow his example to forgive and believe that people really don't know what they're doing to others. 20th century believers, that's us, I think, maybe we're the 21st century, somewhere in there. We have many, 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 many examples of forgiveness. We have forgiveness all through the New Testament. We have examples, we have people in our lives, we have testimonies, and yet we struggle. We feel validated by withholding Forgiveness to someone because they're in leadership and they should know better. They're a family member. They shouldn't have done that. They were my friend. And they did it over and over. And I just can't forgive them. Maybe they're a stranger that you never saw again. But the pain is still there. But when it comes to forgiveness, we don't just have to forgive the offender. We have to forgive God. There's questions that we'll never have answers. Not in this life. God didn't say, I will answer all your questions. And I will reveal all of life's secrets. But he said, I will heal you. And I will offer you peace. And I will make a way for you. But you must forgive. I made a comment at ladies' retreat before I knew I was going to be speaking on this to Sister Leela. I said, I cannot wait to go to heaven because I'm so sick of asking for forgiveness. I was being humorous. 
But there's a lot of truth in that statement. And I'm really sick sometimes of giving forgiveness. Because forgiveness isn't a moment. Forgiveness isn't mental assent. Forgiveness isn't walking up to somebody and saying, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you. Forgiveness is a lifestyle. Forgiveness is making the conscious decision when that pain comes back to stop and say, I choose to forgive. Whether that person deserves it or not, I choose to forgive. But forgiveness is also a lifestyle of looking condemnation in the eyes and saying, I am forgiven. You will not control my life. You will not control my future. I am forgiven. But just like the Bible says, if we do not forgive others, we won't be forgiven. If we don't forgive others, we can't forgive ourselves. Because until we truly understand what it means to forgive somebody, we can't in turn give that to ourselves. Because if we can't forgive, we will never believe that we are forgiven. If we don't forgive, we can't receive the forgiveness of God, even if it is holding, stretching it out in his hand to us. If we have unforgiveness in our heart and our life, we will look at that and say, that's not real. And we won't accept it, and we won't take it. And we will walk away, and we will be miserable and destroyed by our own unforgiveness, and we will be eaten alive by our own pain. Without forgiveness, there is no hope, no peace, no joy. Because forgiveness truly takes control out of our hands. Whether we're the offender or the offended, we have to continually release it to God and trust. We have to trust that that person that hurt us, that just preached a revival and 3,000 people got the Holy Ghost, we have to trust that they've really changed and that God is working in their life and that at the end, all will be reconciled unto Christ. We may have to kneel down beside our bed and all we can pray for that person is Bless them, Jesus. And you know who I'm talking about. Because I can't even say their name yet. And it might take years to be able to say their name as we work through the process of forgiveness. Because we have to release the control to God. Because we can't say, God, I'll forgive them as long as you won't use them. Because we all know what they did. I'll forgive them, God, as long as you don't bless them too much. Because I'm sitting over here barely paying my bills and they just got a new Ferrari. Well, that's not justice. How am I supposed to forgive somebody that's succeeding? Maybe if they were on their deathbed, yeah, I could forgive them. I'm not going to have to deal with them anymore. Maybe they lost their whole house and everything in bankruptcy. You know, let's go forgive them. I'll be the bigger man, woman. 
but they're succeeding. They're making it. Paul was rather popular. Whether you loved him or hate him, people knew who he was. And somebody had to sit in his services and choose to forgive that man and to give an offering to him so that he could go reach souls. And they had to choose to believe that he wasn't all, wasn't all a lie and he wasn't going to go there and kill a bunch, have a bunch of people killed or brought before the Sanhedrin. They had to make the choice, not only will I forgive, but I will trust God that he has a plan that I don't know about. I've heard people say, I forgive them, but bless it, their mansion better not be my mind in heaven. <laughs> but we have to come to a place where we have lived a lifestyle of forgiveness long enough to where we can honestly pray for them and really want good to happen to them. And there will be days you wake up and you sit on the side of the bed and it all comes back or something triggers it. Just like 10 years later, his face threw and it would have thrown an entire family into shock. There's going to be times where we're thrown into shock. Something triggers the moment, the event, the thing that comes at us and it's blown up in our lives all over again like it happened that morning. And we have to look at it and say, I'm going to, I will forgive. I will forgive. I will pray. I will process this again. On this earth, forgiveness is one of the greatest gifts we can give to others and to ourselves. And as leaders and as the growing body of Christ, we must forgive. Every one of us will be hurt, and every one of us will hurt somebody else. And we will all need to forgive, and we will all need forgiveness. But I believe as the body of Christ, and as we lift one another up, and as we join together in unity, we can carry each other's burdens, and we can help one another forgive, and we can look to a future with Christ, knowing that this earth is just a vapor. And the pain we've endured and the suffering we've had is but a moment because we will have eternity with our Lord if we can just learn to forgive. Pastor Stephen will come. Zach, sorry on your birthday that your hopes are up that we were almost done early, but give me 10 minutes. What does it mean? How do I do this? This word forgive. In fact, God and I are going to have to have a discussion because Sister Rachel just stole a sermon that has been percolating in my heart and my mind about forgiving God. The reality is, is forgiveness is a choice on our part. Let me use a legal example to try to help you understand it. Our judicial system has a process whereby things are ruled upon in an effort to create justice. 
If any of the parties feel that that has been an unjust ruling, it can be appealed. And the courts above make a choice based upon the merits of what they hear of whether they will hear that appeal or not. And the final court in our land, the Supreme Court, will only take a few cases, comparatively speaking, across the year. Many of them they decline to take. And the language that they use is language that basically says, we do not feel the need to rule on this. Forgiveness is in the opposite direction of the example, but it is in principle the same. You may have the right to judge a brother or a sister. You may even have the right to judge yourself. You were there. You were present. You were involved. But in the opposite direction from the example I gave you of an higher court declining to hear a case, forgiveness is when you and I decline to render judgment by choosing to allow a higher court to provide the justice. The reason that this is so hard is because that highest court is a God who declares my purpose is to seek and to save lost and broken people. So intrinsic to our very nature is a distrust of that court. And then he chooses, he chooses to not address things the way we want him to. And ladies and gentlemen, I want you to understand this goes, this includes the small and petty slights that we feel. This goes to the place of a child who screams to God night after night as her father abuses her. How can this be justice? This goes to the family who lives their lives without their parents because God decided that he would not heal them. I recently spoke to a young woman and gave her permission from God to yell at God and to scream at God because something happened in her life. And God could have. He could have stopped it. And yet, for some reason, he did not. You see, 
this forgiveness of others ultimately comes down to a choice to forgive God. To affirm contrary to the evidence that you are good, that you are righteous, and that in the end, all will be made right. It's a humility as opposed to an arrogance. The Supreme Court declines so many of the cases simply because they do not deem them of much, of the most importance. It's not that they couldn't hear the case. It's not that they couldn't rule on the case. It's that it doesn't meet the metric of importance for the land. They can only take so many cases in a year. And so they look for those that are most important for our society to achieve rulings that then go back out through all of our legal systems and bring about justice as we humanly see it. We We have to choose to release into the hands of God a case that looks unjust, but for which when we are honest, we do not know how to bring about justice. Because behind every story behind every parent abused a little boy or a little girl you'll find most times that parent was themselves abused how do you untangle it how far back can we go When we begin to acknowledge our own frailty. When we begin to acknowledge our own brokenness. I genuinely don't know how to bring about justice. My wife and I have looked at each other many, many times and says, I can look at what my parents did and I can see things that should have been done better. And she can look at her parents and see things that should have been done better. And yet reality is, is that there are things that we are doing now that our children will one day look and go, you could have done better. Why did you make that choice? Why didn't you understand me better? The scriptures are clear that we as fathers and mothers, we discipline, we lead, we guide as best we know how. But the manner in which we know how is so flawed. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
There is none that doeth good. No, not one. I will tell you as a biblical scholar and as someone who next to Luke Acts have a fair amount of expert knowledge in the life of Paul. What Sister Rachel brought tonight is is I've never, I've never in my life thought about this. I have three levels, you all know that. Possible, probable, and certain. This is not a certain, but this is most definitely a probable. The scale of his persecution, the scope of his reach. It was him that drove the people out of Jerusalem. Only apostles stayed. It's those people he drove out of Jerusalem who went to Antioch and planted that church. In fact, I'm slightly jealous. Why did God give this insight to that woman instead of to me? She doesn't even know how to unpack all of it. I could have unpacked it even better. And perhaps that's the point. God didn't need it unpacked. He just needed it put out. As I sit and I think about this, and you think about this graphic example of this larger principle, God chose to forgive Saul. Forgiveness is us declining to hear the case. Not because we're so important and not because we do not have the right or the ability to hear the case, but because we have chosen to trust the higher court. Even when the higher court gives us evidence that should, by all accounts, cause us to never trust him. Because we know that everything is under God's control. So then how can he be good and just if he allowed, if he didn't stop, if he didn't fix my wrong? I ultimately do not have an answer for you. I only have a pointer, a direction. The reason you and I need to forgive is present within ourselves. Because the same flawed person that you are is also your neighbor. And the same need for forgiveness that you have, your neighbor also needs. I think Russ is the one that said it to me before. I've heard it other times, but it's, we judge ourselves 
by our intent and we judge others by their actions. I do not have the ability to unsnarl that. And that is why I forgive. I don't have the ability to unpack all that. That is why I release it to God. You do not deny that the evil was done. You do not ignore that the wrong was done. You do not set it aside and minimize it. You don't do any of that. That's not forgiveness. It is okay for you to rail against the wrong. It is okay for you to, to, to talk to God and, and to even yell, as I told this young lady, and scream at him. Why? But in the end, each time you forgive, forgiveness is you saying, God, I don't have the ability to unpackage this. I don't have the ability to bring this to a place of justice. And so I release it to you. And when I have a problem with what you seem to be doing with it, when your actions don't seem to measure up, to what even your word calls justice. God, I forgive you. I don't even know how to unpackage that. And so I release you in faith to your own goodness and your own righteousness and your own justice. I hope this doesn't depress anybody, and I hope this doesn't make anybody leave serving God. But this is the reality. If he can't make it right, nobody can make it right. If he can, and you won't forgive, you have taken it out of his hands. And at least for yourself, remove the ability for him to bring it to right. If he can't make it right, it's a lost cause anyway. So you have nothing to lose and everything to gain by choosing to forgive even when forgiving requires you to forgive God you will not do this in a moment you will not do this in multiple moments you will do this across your lifetime And that's okay, too. I'm giving everybody here permission. Don't let the devil beat up on you and call you unchristian because 30 years later, you got to walk through that process again. It probably won't look the same. It probably won't feel the same. 
but you'll still have to do some of the same steps. God, I can't judge this one. God, I release them. I release it. I release myself into your hands. I have long recognized, and I'm closing. Promise, Zach, you'll get 15 minutes tonight. Four minutes to go. Happy birthday. My challenge has always been that I've recognized in order to take the gospel to the world, there needs to be organizational structure. But any organizational structure is made of humans. And humans make rules. We see it in the Gospels that God doesn't abide by. We deem people unusable that God says, oh no, I can use them. We relegate ministries to places of irrelevance and God goes, oh no, it's extremely relevant. We deem things threats that God goes, oh no, this is absolutely essential. In fact, the gospel won't go forward without it. The Jerusalem church's problem with Paul is that Jerusalem was an organizational church. And Paul, he just didn't fit the billet. He'd caused too much pain and too much hardship. God couldn't be using him. His message couldn't be right. This is too dangerous. This is not controllable. And yet we know by the scriptures that God says, oh, no, I handpicked this dude. I put my hand on him. I have, I have actually used the persecution of my people to position him that when I showed up on that road at Damascus, he was in a place that he could hear me. And those pricks that he had been, those goads that he had been having, I believe since he was a boy, as he went out and saw Jesus on the countryside, come flooding down upon him. Is it possible that God would use your hardship to affect his will? Is it possible that God would use your sin to bring about other salvation? Is it possible that God is actually capable of unraveling this whole thing and doing all things well. The only way we can align with that God is through forgiveness. And ironically, scarily, if that's even a word, Jesus said, the only way that I won't forgive you is if you will not release others, including yourself, to my sovereign will. Jesus, God, this seems basic, and yet this is fundamental to leadership. God, this is the first thing we begin to run into, Lord, as a new convert, and yet 
further that we serve and the more that we lead, the more we are hurt and the more we must forgive. God, you do not seem just at times. But Lord, I release you into your own hands. I trust your justice, your righteousness, your holiness, your goodness, your sovereignty, and I release you into your own hands because I can't sort it all out, God. God, I still hurt. There's still loss. There's times I rail against you, oh God, for you seem unjust. But then I choose. And God, help me to continue to choose. Help each individual person in this place to continue to choose that in the end, after having expressed ourselves and shouted and yelled and screamed to you, that we release you into your own hands. We forgive even you. Because God, if you can't sort this out, if you cannot put this world to right, it cannot be made right. So we choose to believe that it is you. You are the Savior. You are the one who can do all things well. And so we forgive. Help us to forgive ourselves. Help us to forgive those who have hurt us. And help us to forgive your choices as you carry out justice in a manner we are unable to follow. I pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Would you all across this place just lift your hands and acknowledge who God is right now? Would you just love him right now?